This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the political power of women's anger. Rebecca Traster has been thinking about that. Her new book is called Good and Mad. But first, the most important voting rights issue on the ballot in 2018 restoring the voting rights of 1.4 million ex-felons in Florida. An initiative on the ballot there would repeal one of the country's worst Jim Crow laws. Trump Watch starts right now. The fight against Donald Trump is a fight above all for voters and against vote suppression. And one of the key battles to expand voting rights and push back against vote suppression is going on right now in the key swing state of Florida. For many years, voting rights activists there have been campaigning to restore voting rights to felons. And now an initiative to do just that will appear on the ballot in Florida in November. For that story, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He writes regularly for The Nation. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on again. So how many people would get their right to vote back if Florida passes what they call Proposition 4 on November 6th? Well, it's an absolutely huge story because the thing about Florida and several other states in the South in particular is that they have a process that is essentially permanent disenfranchisement. So if you lose the right to vote because you've been convicted of a felony, the mechanism for getting re-enfranchised at the back end of your sentence is so cumbersome that almost nobody does it. For decades, you had relatively stable disenfranchisement numbers because you had relatively stable, and in the historical scheme of things, relatively low numbers of people going to prison, numbers of people getting felony convictions. What makes this an absolutely enormous number is the juxtaposition of permanent disenfranchisement with mass incarceration and with the wholesale conviction of drug users in particular in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s of felonies. So you have this accumulating problem where more and more and more people are picking up felonies and they're not getting re-enfranchised. So when they come out at the back end of their sentence, they remain disenfranchised. And the numbers are hard to get exactly because, first of all, Nobody compiles data of ex-felons and ex-prisoners who live in a given state. And second of all, Florida disenfranchises people regardless of where their felony conviction was. So you can live pretty much anywhere in the country. If you come into Florida after a felony conviction, you can't vote in Florida. All by way of saying that the numbers are very, very large, but they're estimates. But here's the estimate. The estimate is that about 1.8 million Floridians, which is about 10% of Floridians, have felony records. 1.4 million of those would be eligible for re-enfranchisement. The ones who aren't are people who are still in prison or on probation, they never went to prison in the first place, or on parole. And the other ones who aren't, and this was a compromise made by the authors of the amendment, the other ones who aren't are sexual offenders and people convicted of murder. So if you factor out those two categories of crime, you factor out those still in prison, those still on parole or probation, you're still left with 1.4 million people who, if this passes, will now become eligible to vote. 
Florida, of course, is hardly the only state where felons are denied the right to vote. Why are felons denied the right to vote even after they've served their sentences, paid their so-called debt to society? What was the argument supporting this this policy? It it, it depends how deep into the weeds you want to go on this. The sort of long-term historical justification goes back to laws in England and customs in England hundreds and hundreds of years ago to do with what was called civil death. And it was basically a way of saying, if you had committed certain crimes, you were outside the boundaries of society, you were outside the legal protections, you were outside the rights of other residents, other citizens. In the American context, the way that played out was this notion that if you commit a crime, you suffer two penalties. One is a finite sentence, that could be prison, it could be probation, it could be parole. But the other one is this more permanent set of forfeiting of rights. So you can't vote, you can't sit on juries, you can't own guns, etc. That was the sort of intellectual origin of it. Pragmatically, what happened after the end of the Civil War was the states in the Deep South, about 130 years ago in the um, 1880s, 1890s, they were starting to reimagine their state constitutions and they were looking for ways that would allow them to disenfranchise African Americans without running afoul of the 13th, 14th amendments and so on. And one of the things they came up with was this notion of permanent disenfranchisement. So they began expanding their criminal justice system. They began putting an enormous number of African Americans, especially men, in prison for low-end crimes. And there were a whole series of crimes that were essentially reserved for black people, crimes like vagrancy and loitering and so on. And people would be arrested for these crimes. They'd be put in prison or they'd be fined and they'd lose the right to vote. So it was a way that southern states could take vast numbers of people out of the voting process. Now, what happened over the 20th century was a lot of states reformed or modified those codes. And these weren't just southern states because what had happened was some of the more recent states like Montana and Arizona and New Mexico and states that had achieved statehood after the Civil War, had followed southern state constitutions in imagining their own state constitution. So you had this whole bunch of states in the south and a whole bunch of states in the mountain west and desert west that had disenfranchisement. And a lot of those states, as the 20th and early 20th centuries have gone on, decided that was antithetical to democracy, and so they modified their permanent disenfranchisement codes. And so you're left at this point with this hardcore of states, mainly in the Old South, that have stubbornly clung to disenfranchisement. So you have Florida, you have Virginia, which has had this almighty tussle about whether or not to modify it. You have very strict codes in Tennessee, in Kentucky, in Mississippi. And in these states, that's where you see these just extraordinary numbers, one in five, even one in four black men who are permanently removed from the voting processes. Tell us a little about the campaign in Florida to restore voting rights to felon. Who's organizing it? How did it get started? What's the argument that they've been making? In terms of who started it, this is very much grassroots driven, and it's actually organized and led by They call themselves returning citizens, people who've either been in prison or been on probation, and they've completed their sentences, and they're trying to remake their lives. They're trying to reintegrate themselves into the society, and they found that they cannot vote. And so primarily, this is a grassroots-led campaign by people who are at the wrong end of disenfranchisement codes. Now, that said, there are also criminal justice reform groups 
that have gotten involved in this because this is this has been an issue for years. Um, I wrote about it after the 2000 election when mass disenfranchisement in Florida was clearly one of the things that pushed George Bush over the edge in that hotly contested race for the presidency where it came down to a dead heat in Florida. So this has been a sort of holy grail of criminal justice reformers for decades. I think the reason it's acquiring traction now, partly there's this interesting coalition between progressives and conservatives that's emerged over the last 10 years or so around disenfranchisement. And so you have a lot of conservative groups, especially religious conservative groups, that are talking the language of second chance. They're talking the language of redemption. And so in Florida, there's this really interesting coalition. You've got the sort of more traditional criminal justice reform groups, but then you've also got the Christian coalition and various other groups who have come aboard and said, yes, we think it's only fair that voters get a second chance. And so I think one of the reasons it's been so successful is this coalition of groups has been going around the state, not just to traditionally liberal parts of the state. They've been going all over the state and they've been telling stories. They've been explaining the impact on individuals of disenfranchisement. They've been putting a human face to this massive number, 1.8 million people who cannot vote in this state. So how's it doing in, in the opinion polls? Is this going to pass? Mm-hmm. I know that in Florida, propositions like this require more than 50%. I think it's 60%. Can they get to 60%? It's 60%. On one level, that's an uphill climb. On another level, when you look at the opinion poll data, the numbers are very good. Across the state, it's polling well above 60% at this point. Wow. When you break it down... It's polling a majority support by men, majority support by women. It's polling a majority support amongst both Democrats and Republicans and also independents. It's polling a majority support amongst whites, blacks, and Latinos. So in every demographic group, it's polling well. Now, obviously, there's still six weeks to go until the election. There's going to be an awful lot of um, conversation about this. There's going to probably be an awful lot of media about this. But at this point, it's certainly got a good chance of passing. What about undecided voters at this point? Are they a significant factor? Usually they are six or seven weeks out. The polling suggests there are very few people who are undecided and very few people who haven't heard of the initiative. This is something that's gotten an awful lot of attention And an awful lot of people have heard about it and have made up their mind on it. So there actually isn't at this point a huge pool of undecided voters left. And how come the campaign to restore uh, voting rights to felons has been so apparently successful in Florida, given that vote suppression is so important to the Republican party and Florida has a Republican governor and has been a a very divided state politically? Yeah, I think there are a few things going on. The first is that actually, even though federally we're sort of going into reverse on criminal justice with Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department and you know all kinds of bad things happening federally, at a state level, we're at a very interesting moment because more and more states are fundamentally rethinking their approach to criminal justice. And you see that in drug policy, you see it in harm reduction policy. You see it even in bail reform like we have now in California, that it's more and more politically palatable to talk about the impacts of mass incarceration. It's no longer a third rail to talk about criminal justice reform in a way that it was in the 80s, in a way it was in the 90s. You you, you think of Bill Clinton and the really awful lengths that Bill Clinton went to to avoid being seen as soft on crime, including embracing very, very punitive federal 
sentencing guidelines, including embracing massive expenditures on new prisons, on expanding law enforcement apparatus, and so on. Um, but that's no longer the case. There's, there's a national conversation going on around the role of justice and the discriminatory impact of a large part of the justice system, which means there's space for a conversation where it wasn't space, you know, even a few years ago. In Florida, it's really interesting because you're absolutely right. The governor, Governor Scott, is absolutely awful on this issue. And he's gone out of his way to slow down reenfranchisement. He's gone out of his way to make it all but impossible for individuals who are petitioning for clemency to get that and to get reenfranchised. By contrast, if you look at the gubernatorial candidates, the Democratic candidate has come out in support of Amendment 4. But the more interesting one is the Republican candidate, DeSantis, has not come out against it. He hasn't wow. said he's in favor. But he's essentially sat this one out. Now, in the primaries, other Republican candidates did come out against Amendment 4. But DeSantis has been very, very careful not to inject himself into this debate. He said it's up to the citizens of Florida. Now, that doesn't mean that as we get nearer to the election, there won't be dirty tricks. It doesn't mean that as we get nearer, the Republican Party won't use racially inflammatory language because a disproportionate number of the disenfranchised are non-white. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that there is an opening here because the Republican Party are on the defensive on this. They realize it doesn't look good in the current context or in any context to embrace disenfranchisement measures. And let me just conclude by saying a few words about just to remind our listeners how important Florida is in American politics. It's the fourth biggest state. That means it has the fourth largest number of electoral votes in picking the president. Trump carried Florida 49 to 48%. He had about 110,000 votes more than Hillary. Uh, you said there are 1.4 million people eligible to get the right to vote back if Proposition 4 passes. Almost all of them are non-white men. Well, and of well course, we, have to, we have to be careful about that. The, the, the disenfranchisement numbers are so huge in Florida, and they basically go across demographics. So yes, there are more non-white men who are impacted by disenfranchisement, but there are certainly hundreds of thousands of white men and women who are also impacted. And one, one of the things the reenfranchisement campaign has been extremely good at talking about is how this is a nonpartisan or should be a nonpartisan issue, that it doesn't matter whether people will vote Democrat or will vote Republican or will vote something else entirely, that this is a basic human rights issue, that you can't run a modern democracy if you exclude that many people permanently from the electoral process. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote about the campaign to restore voting rights to felons in Florida for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Sasha. Very welcome. Thanks again. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about the political power of women's anger. For that, we turn to Rebecca Traster. She writes for New York Magazine and also for Elle, 
She won the National Magazine Award. She's also written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Nation. Her new book is the political book of the year, at least for me. It's called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca Traster, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. The New York Times page one headline about Brett Kavanaugh's testimony last Thursday read, quote, a nominee is rescued by a display of rage. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Yeah, one of the things I write about in the book is whose rage is taken seriously in America as politically valid, politically consequential, as sort of reflectively righteous. And the argument I make in the book, and of course I finished writing this book months before the Kavanaugh hearings, but I write about how in this country the kind of political rage that we do kind of take reflexively seriously is the rage of powerful white men. Our founding kind of lullaby is the founder's rage, right? It's the 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 anger that undergirded the American Revolution. Give me liberty or give me death. Live free or die. The fury that was our national founding. And, of course, the thing that happened then is that those founders who were so angry about being taxed and policed without being represented in government, they they made their angry split from England. And then in creating a new nation, they built the nation on on lack of representation, on the kind of inequities that they were so righteously objecting to, enslaving African-Americans, wiping out the native population, leaving women with all kinds of barriers to full legal, economic, political part- participation. When the rage of those who were left out of the nation's founding and its and its promise of equal representation, have expressed rage that in many ways echoed the founding rage. Many of the people who have objected from the early labor movement, the Lowell Mill girls striking, talked about their anger at poor working conditions, borrowing the language and ideas from the founders, Mum Bet, an enslaved woman who would later be known as Elizabeth Freeman in, in the 18th century in Massachusetts, lived in the home of, a, of an active revolutionary politician she heard the revolutionary rhetoric in her home and she applied it to her own situation, petitioned for her freedom. Um, her case became the basis for the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts in 1783. The, the actual angry rhetoric of having been unjustly impinged upon about having faced injustice is, is rhetoric that has been voiced by many people who are not powerful white men, but often that is disregarded, marginalized, made to sound hysterical or animalistic or infantile or threatening, depending on who it's coming from. And so in this past couple of weeks during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, we've seen all kinds of examples of that. Uh, the rage of the powerful white man, not just Kavanaugh, but Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump, the members of the Republican Party, all of them powerful white men, fundamentally representing the interests of a white capitalist patriarchy. That rage worked to their benefit. Brett Kavanaugh could go into that hearing room and rage about the injustice that was being done to him. They could talk about the mob. Donald Trump could apologize for the pain that has been inflicted on his family. There was this notion that he had been done wrong, and the fact that he was moved to to angry and passionate expression only underscored the seriousness of how how poorly he'd been treated. So Kavanaugh, we could say, performed anger. Dr. Ford took the opposite course A lot of people thought she was very effective at doing that. What do you think? Well, she was, but that's in part because of the way that we're conditioned to hear and respond to anger differently when it comes from different people. So in Kavanaugh's case, that anger, his raised tones and the snarling and fury could be used to amplify how serious he was to to make his point stronger. 
Had Christine Blasey Ford employed that kind of anger, yelling or making faces, talking back to people, it would have badly undermined her point. Women aren't permitted to use anger as a weapon to amplify their voices or their points of view. Instead, we're told that anger, if we express ourselves angrily, it will detract from the seriousness with which we are taken. And so she she performed in a voice and in a mode that was the acceptable mode for women, for white middle class women. She was polite. She was deferential, solicitous, quiet, measured, rational. She called on science. She didn't express any fury. Um, She often talked about how she just wanted to be collegial. And that was the mode of expression that she was permitted if she wanted to be taken seriously. And she did it. Dr. Ford wasn't angry, but there were some other people who were angry, the two women in the elevator to start with. The two women in the elevator, all the protesters who'd taken over Washington. And and that protest movement had started before before Dr. Ford's allegations became known to the public. And those protesters in the Senate gallery yelling about abortion and health care repeal in the first round of hearings for Brett Kavanaugh were referred to by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee as loudmouths and um, experiencing hysteria. That was Orrin Hatch and, and Ben Sass, respectively. They were kind of made made out to be a nuisance. Orrin Hatch said we shouldn't have to put up with this about the protesters who were screaming during Kavanaugh's initial hearings. And then, of course, after the assault allegations were made, there was a whole new round and a new population of protesters who flooded the Capitol telling their stories, many of them telling really difficult stories of trauma and assault, including the two women Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, who confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator. There were other survivors, Alison Turcos, um, Jess Morales, who confronted Ted Cruz, Alison Turcos, confronted Joe Manchin. There were women who yelled throughout the vote, and they were referred to by one Fox News host as screaming animals. And then, of course, Donald Trump and Marco Rubio have referred to them as a mob, an angry mob. Trump compared them to arsonists. That's a very clear view that we get of how angry expression can be used against women, in this case, the protesters. But anger can be used for a powerful white man, in this case, Brett Kavanaugh and his confirmation to the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment. There's a familiar argument about women's anger. It goes like this. By itself, women's anger can be destructive. Its value comes when it is transformed into something else, namely political action. That's what makes it important. That's what makes it worthwhile. What do you think? Well, I think that there's a lot of value in the ability to express anger without fear of censure and recrimination. And many women, of course, don't have that ability to just freely express their anger. So I think there's a value in the expression of anger simply because it's part of a full range of human emotion and response that we sort of discourage in women, but don't discourage in the same ways in men, especially powerful white men. And so I'm sort of for the value of anger or at least the ability to express it freely and not have to stuff it down, you know, on a couple of fronts. I also do think that often anger is at the initial sort of beating heart start of a political or social movement. Certainly, if you look back at the at the social movements that have radically transformed this country, starting with the abolition and suffrage movements through the labor movement, 
the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the LGBT movement, often at the beginning, there have been women who were angry, whose anger proved catalytic um, in forming connections and, and developing coalitions that led to the kind of organizing and work sometimes over decades or centuries that helped to change America, I think, for the better. A lot of women's anger has gone into progressive causes, but not always. Today, we see that not all white women in particular are angry about Trump. In fact, a majority of white women voted for him. That famous figure, 52% of white women voters voted for Trump. Your book has some fascinating data on how women's voting reveals a stark partisan divide between married women and never married women. Let's go over those figures for a minute. Um, There was a study done by a group of political scientists who found that the closer white women were to marriage, the more likely they were to vote for Donald Trump. So married white women were the category that was most likely to vote for Donald Trump. And then I believe widowed white women, divorced and separated white women, and then never married never married white women were the category of white women who women who actually voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So this is something that actually ties to the last book that I published, All the Single Ladies, about the ways that the ways that white patriarchy works to make all kinds of people dependent on it. And among the advantages um, and enticements offered to white women via their associations with white men, you know, is is white supremacy, the proximal power of being close to white men, um, being dependent on them, often via marriage. There are all kinds of other ways in which white women are dependent on men emotionally, financially, professionally. But there is some data that suggests that the closer white women are to white men via their marriages, the more likely they are to vote for conservative policies that fundamentally benefit and uphold a white patriarchy. But this has always been true. This is not new in the 2016 election, which is a point I'm really anxious to drive home. It is not. It should not have been a surprise that white women voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. In fact, they did slightly better. Uh, in 2016 than they had in 2012 when 56% of them voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. Since they've been measuring, which is since 1952, white women have voted for Republicans in presidential elections every year but two, 1992 and 1996. The fact that white women have often been deployed and have channeled the anger of other white women on behalf of a white capitalist patriarchy is another element of this book. Phyllis Schlafly led an army of angry white women in her crusade to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, in, and she succeeded in 1982. So the point is not that women's anger is always progressive. It is that it is very often politically potent in a way that we don't give it credit for. We've been talking here about white women. What about women who are not white? Well, Non-white women find their anger marginalized in very specific and noxious ways. The caricature of an angry of the angry black woman is used against black women so frequently and to such damaging effect it can take a lot of forms. One is an almost cartoonish marginalization of the angry black woman, the caricature of the neck snapping sapphire, sassy black woman who is used either, that caricature is used to either comedically dismiss the often extremely righteous anger of of black women to sort of make it mean less. The other thing is if, if when black women actually do come close to closer to power, their anger is cast as threatening, as terrifying, as, as 
militaristic. And you can see that with what happened to, to Michelle Obama in the 2008 election. Um, Michelle Obama, a sort of purveyor of, of cheerful energy, issued a, a very mild appraisal of the country's history of racism and was quickly labeled the angry black woman. She was on magazine covers appearing to scowl or yell, why is Michelle Obama so angry? She was dubbed Mrs. Grievance. She was cast as this caricature of angry black womanhood. And in that case, when she was on the verge of being the first black woman to move into the White House as a first lady, she was cast as a threat, as a kind of subversive, to the point that she was caricatured on the cover of The New Yorker, um, you know, in a kind of black power pose. The other more recent example of this is Maxine Waters, who is actually given both treatment. Maxine Waters has, and I write a lot about her history in the book, of having always seen and, and articulated the value of mass anger in the face of oppression. This goes back to the 90s and the unrest that happened in the wake of the Rodney King verdicts in Los Angeles when she was a new congresswoman. And people were calling that unrest riots and referring to the to to those engaging in protest uh, and looting as thugs and she was out there back then saying this is an insurrection this is not a riot they have reason to be angry i'm not i'm i don't want people to get hurt but i'm not going to tell people not to feel angry she has always been a real advocate for the the validity of mass rage in reaction to inequality and often violent injustice. And in the Trump administration, she, of course, has been vocally angry about the abuses of the Trump administration. And on the one hand, she gets treated as, in some ways, affirmatively, but as a kind of meme, a cartoon. She does the, the Auntie Maxine looking over her glasses or saying, I'm reclaiming my time, becomes a sort of useful communicative device, often for, for women who aren't themselves black and who aren't expressing their own anger but are often using the image of Maxine Waters to do it for them. At the same time, in the news media, she is vilified and in the right-wing media made out to be really dangerous. She says something like, I'm going to go get Trump. And and not just the right-wing media, but mainstream media asks her, are you talking about killing the president? Which, of course, she wasn't. But there's a way of blowing up black women's anger to appear as a threat. One last thing. I'd like to talk just for a minute about Tears of Rage. You have this mm -hmm. wonderful part of your book where you quote an older woman telling you, never let them see you crying. What was that about? Well, I think that one of the most profoundly misunderstood expressions of rage in women is tears because so many other open expressions of fury are discouraged or discounted. Many of us sort of instinctively and in part because it's so frustrating to not be able to say the ways we're angry in an angry way because we know that it will somehow redound negatively against us. I think many of us instinctively turn to tears and especially there's, there's a racial component here. I think this is especially true if you're a white woman um, who within a white patriarchy, people are more ready to envision and cast as traditionally feminine and vulnerable uh, and to whom the power structure is more likely to extend sympathy or imagined offers of protection. I think that tears can be read as vulnerability and, and make women's dissatisfaction 
more appealing. And so tears are often understood as a sign of weakness or simple grief, and they very often are grief, but very often they're blind rage. And I don't think that that is widely understood enough. And what my boss once said to me, she pulled me aside and she said, I was just crying at work. And this was not somebody with whom I had a close relationship. She pulled me aside and sort of said, don't let them see you crying. They don't know you're furious. They think that you're upset and they'll be pleased that they got to you. There's lots more great stuff in this book, including sections on a time for rage and the exhilaration of activism. We'll leave it to listeners to find that for themselves in Rebecca Traster's book. It's called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>